Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Colossians chapter 4. We're going to talk tonight about every team's goal. If you noticed a few spots in your communicator this week and talking about a ministry philosophy, you will find it on the front cover, not all of it, but just an overview of some of the ideas behind it on the front cover of your bulletin. There's an acrostic there about playing ball. If you know anything about baseball, you know that the game can't start until the pitcher throws the ball. When the pitcher throws the ball, then it's time for the game to begin. Everything has to begin at the pitcher's mound, and then it goes around the bases. Everybody has to be in their position. And so what I want to share with you beginning tonight and over the next few weeks is trying to get the ball into play so that we can win as a church and be what God wants us to be as a church. If you'll notice the acrostic that relates to play, prayer undergirds the ministry, love makes us get, make a difference, attitudes determine success, and your commitment is crucial. That has to do with the overall ministry, with the overall way that we think, with the overall, overall way that we work. It is in prayer and love and in our attitudes and in our personal commitments. The membership of this church is going to be asked in the coming week to step up to the plate and make some commitments like you may have never made before. To make some commitments that will make a difference in the way that we do ministry in this church and the way that we reach people and touch lives. The ball part of that philosophy is in Bible truth must be proclaimed. Now these are not in order because it's hard to get a word in order with bases, but they're going to cover all the bases. If you want to know what the baseball field is all about, second base is Bible truth. That's teaching. It is our responsibility to proclaim and teach the truth of the Word of God. At every level, we must be caregivers. That's first base. Once we have reached people, we got to tell them that we care about them. Because you really can't teach people until they know that you care about them. They don't want information. They want you to care. Third base is leaders must be trainers. All of us, whether we consider ourselves leaders or not, are part of the important body of Christ. And we must be trainers. That's third base. And then the last, <clears throat> which is really where it all starts after the pitcher's mound, is that lost persons must be reached. That's in two places. That's home plate and that's the outfield. If you look at the infield that is screened behind these words, you will find that the infield is what we do at church. That's church primarily how we do it through Bible study and through Sunday school. The outfield is the community that God has called us to. What we do on first, second, and third base and at home is here at church that makes us go into the outfield and play the game in our community. I heard a story about a church that went to give its associational report and the church clerk of that church stood up and read the report and said, additions to the church during the year by baptism, zero. Additions by transfer of letter, zero. Additions during the year by restoration, zero. Losses with, by withdrawal of fellowship, zero. 
Losses by transfer of letter, zero. Losses by marriage, zero. And losses by death, zero. And the church clerk closed his report by saying, pray for us, brethren, we are holding our own. That's the problem with thousands and thousands of churches in America today. They're just holding their own. I don't believe when God called me here in November of 1989 that He called me to pastor a church that's holding its own. Nor do I believe that God called me here to pastor a church that one day we will look back and say, you know, we used to have some great days. And there used to be some great blessings. But somehow we would miss our opportunity, miss the field that is before us that is white unto harvest. And Jesus said we are to pray the Lord of the harvest that He might send laborers in the field because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. It is sad to me that we can baptize 120 people and far exceed any other church in this community. It is sad to me that we can baptize that many people and be in the top 20 in this state in baptisms. It is sad to me that a church our size in Albany, Georgia, can be in the top 1% of churches in America. Why? Because I know that what that means is there are a lot of churches with even bigger opportunities that we have that are sitting on their blessed assurance and not doing what God told them to do. That does not, however, excuse us from doing what God told us to do. Nor does it keep us from doing all that we can do to be the church that God has called us to be where we are because quite honestly, we're not accountable for what 38,000 other Southern Baptist churches do. We're just accountable for this one. As pastor and as people, we are accountable for what God wants to do in our midst. And so I want to ask you to look at these verses in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. <clears throat> Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God may open to us a door for the Word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. I wrote a letter this week to every key and elected leader in this church asking them to be here tonight. Whether they taught Sunday school or missions groups or whatever committee they might have served on, asking people to be here because whatever happens in this church has to begin on the leadership level. We can never go and reach those who are uninvolved and uncommitted, nor can we ever touch those who just have a casual commitment to Sunday morning if those of us who are considered by this church to be leaders do not have an overwhelming commitment to the great commission of Jesus Christ and what we are supposed to be as a church. I'm going to admit to you that I have been frustrated with a holy frustration and a holy desperation and a holy uneasiness over the last few months. I've had to wrestle with my call. I've had to wrestle with my position and with what God wants me to do with my life and with my ministry. I've had to ask hard questions. I've had to let people ask me hard questions. 
I've had to look in the mirror and evaluate what it is I want to do with my life, what it is I believe that God wants to do with this church. And so what I'm going to give to you over the next few weeks are birthed out of many, many, many hours of prayer and evaluation, of tearing up paper, of putting paper together, of piecemealing, of discussing, of throwing it up in disgust and just saying, forget it all. And of all of those things that have come about, this is the end result. So I want to ask you to listen to me as I share my heart, because to be quite honest, for anything to happen in this church, I must be the first one willing to change. I must be the first one that's willing to take it up another notch. I must be the first one that's willing to step up and say it's time for me to play ball. A.W. Tozer said, No man is worthy to succeed until he is willing to fail. I shared a lengthy quote with our deacons yesterday. I want to share it with you and I just want you to listen to the content of this for it has much to do with where we are. It is from Bill Hall's book, Can We Save the Evangelical Church? If a way is not found for church leadership teams to break the bondage of ineffective leadership models, there will be no church renewal. This is how critical the renewal of existing leaders is to the cause of Christ. If renewal is to take place, it must begin at the leadership level. Poor lay leadership is linked to poor pastoral leadership. Pastors are frustrated and lay people are uninspired. All are dropping out in greater numbers than ever. They are angry and bitter and have sworn off future church involvement. Some of the happiest people I know are elated to be ex-church leaders. Leaders make or break any plan, program, or attempt to renew a congregation. If leaders are open to and seriously pursue personal renewal, then the congregation will follow. The problem is that as a whole, church leaders are not leading. Many will not lead, some cannot lead, and others do not know how to lead. It all goes back to, why are we here? It is on the top of your communicator every week. It is on the top of your bulletin today. I want to ask you to look at it. It's called the mission statement of Sherwood Baptist Church. Right in the very top in that box, under the name of the church, it says, and read it with me if you would please, Sherwood Baptist Church was established to reach the whole world with the whole word, motivated by a passion for Christ and a compassion for all people. That mission statement must become a part of our lives. It must become a part of the way that we make decisions. It is not just there to take up space and to put letters on paper. It is there for us to evaluate why we are here, for us to evaluate what we're going to do about the fact that we are here. It should be in, in, in dwelling in us. It should be a part of us. It should permeate every pore of our being that we can quote it as well as we can quote John 3.16. For in that verse is the Great Commission. In that verse is our call. In that verse we find out if we have a passion to do what God has called us to do or not. Now the baseball diamond is simply a way to define that philosophy. And tonight I want to begin at home plate. The pitcher's mound is there because that is where preaching and prayer are emphasized. The shortstop's position is on that chart because that is where worship is emphasized. But everything must throw to home plate. 
If we don't get the ball to home plate, we never win the game. We must begin there, and home plate is in outreach. It is the reach base of our commitment, and we have a responsibility to this community to reach it and to touch it and to make an impact for the cause of Christ. What we are talking about doesn't have anything to do with buildings or with budgets. It has to do with people. We will worry about buildings and budgets down the road. What we have to worry about now is where are the people who are willing to touch other people, to serve Christ, not just stand around and sip coffee? Where are those who will come to the forefront and go to home plate and be reachers? The fellowship is sweet here. This is one of the most affirming churches I can imagine anywhere on the face of the earth. I don't know of any church that I have ever been more proud to be a part of. I don't know of any place that I have ever seen more love extended in my life. I don't know of any fellowship where God's hand has seemingly tried to move in so many ways, and I don't know of any place I've ever served where Satan has fought us more at every turn with little things and big things than in this place in the last four and a half years of my life. But the truth of the matter is this. Our fellowship is good, we enjoy one another, we love one another, we have a wonderful church, but mark it down, we are here for them. We are not here for us. It is not what is this church going to do for me, it is what am I going to do to touch a world for Jesus Christ. We are here for them. We are God's occupying force on earth. It is our call and our commission and I want you to look at a word that has riveted my mind and my attention in this last week in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5. It's one of those words that you forget. It's one of those words that you look over. Circle it if you would in your Bible, Colossians 4, 5, outsiders. Outsiders. The King James says, those who are without. It means those who are outside the church, outside the gospel. It's the same word that was used of Mary at the empty tomb as she stood outside the tomb and looked in and saw that Jesus was gone. It's the same word that's used of Simon Peter as he stood outside in the courtyard while Jesus was on trial. It is a word in this verse referring to those who are outside of the gospel. And to be outside of the gospel is to be lost forever. Our problem, I think, as believers is we have forgotten what it was like to be on the outside. We don't remember the guilt and the pain and the hurt and the fear and the loneliness and the depression that was in our lives before we discovered how good Jesus was. We've forgotten what it was like to be outside. There's nothing worse than to want to get inside to a game and not have a ticket to get in. There's nothing worse in eternity's perspective than for those outside to somehow get the idea that those inside do not care, that they are without Christ and without God and without hope and without love and without forgiveness. The truth of the matter is, 
we spend far too much time in church talking to ourselves and not enough time talking to people that are outside. Paul says, I want you to pray for me and I want you to be sensitive about how we deal with these outsiders. He is praying for an open door. And so what I want to do with the remainder of my time is I want to talk to you about how we talk to them. Because if we don't learn how to talk to them, it's always going to be them and us instead of just us. First of all, are you concerned about outsiders? It begins with prayer. Are you concerned about outsiders? It begins with prayer. We are to be bathing these people in prayer. Campus Crusade has a slogan that says, Before you talk to people about God, talk to God about people. It begins in prayer. All evangelism begins in being plugged into God's heart through prayer because when we are plugged in to God's heart through prayer, then God makes us dissatisfied with where we are. And He makes us hungry and He makes us long for those who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who is it that you are praying for? The old joke says, behind every successful man is a surprised mother-in-law. But it's no joke when I tell you behind every convert is a surprise prayer warrior. Because behind every convert there has to be somebody that prayed them into the kingdom. Now, I want to ask you to look at two verses of Scripture with me, please. Mark chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you want to know where evangelism begins, it begins on our knees before we ever get in our cars. Before we ever go in a restaurant, before we ever walk into a home, before we ever talk to anybody at work, evangelism begins on our knees in prayer. Mark chapter 4. Jesus is going to use this word, outsiders again. Mark chapter 4 and verse 11. And He was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. Boy, don't you like that? I mean, isn't it great to discover Bible truth? Isn't it great to know the Word of God and to, to know the principles of the Word of God and to see God's revelation and to be able to communicate that and talk about it as a family and talk about it in Sunday school and open your Bibles? To you has been given the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, they get everything in parables in order that while seeing they may see and not perceive and while hearing they may hear and not understand lest they return and be forgiven. You see, there are people who see, but they don't see. They hear, but they don't hear. Because they have not yet understood the mysteries of the kingdom. There is still spiritual darkness in their soul. And until God turns the light on in them, and the Holy Spirit begins to quicken them and to tell them in their heart, today is the day of salvation for you. Today is the day that forgiveness has come to your house. Until God begins to do that, they are in darkness. They see, but they don't see. They hear, but they don't hear. They can come to church. They can be at the door of spiritual experience. They can be religious, but they do not understand until God begins to work in them. And the way God begins to work in them is through prayer. We pray for those 
who are blinded by sin. We pray for those who are deaf to the gospel. The second is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 13. Please underline this one in your Bible. But those who are outside, God judges. We spend a lot of time talking to ourselves and judging others. And in light of this verse, we need to spend more time judging ourselves and talking to others. Those who are outside, God judges. That tells me that there's coming a day that if those who are outside remain outside, that there's a judgment coming and they face an eternity without Christ, they face an eternity in hell, they face an eternity in damnation because they've never heard or never been able to receive or have never responded to the gospel. If they choose not to respond, that's their business. If we choose not to go, that's our problem. Those who are outside, God judges. I want you to turn back to Colossians chapter 4, if you would, because I want you to see some phrases that are pivotal. Not only does it begin with prayer, but it is consistent and alert praying. What I mean by that, it's not easily discouraged praying. He says devote. That word devote means be strong toward prayer. It means don't be easily put off in praying for people. Devote yourselves to prayer. Be strong in prayer. Don't be easily put off. In other words, you can't give up until they give in. That's a good way of looking at it. You can't give up until they give in. Devote yourselves. Be strong. Be determined. God wants us to wrestle for the souls of men in prayer. It is constant prayer. But He also says keeping alert. Not rote prayers, Lord, save the lost. Lord, be with the missionaries. Not just rote prayers, but keeping alert, zeroing in, concentrated prayer, focused prayer. Sitting down and bearing down on people through prayer. Now let me give you a little project for your Sunday school class. Get the name of one lost person, just one, that you know. And your class for six weeks bear down on them in prayer. God, whatever you have to do, whatever steps you have to take, whoever you want to use, God, this is a person that we want to see come to Jesus Christ in the next six weeks. Zero in on somebody. Don't pray in general. Get specific about it. Somebody that you can look to and see. Somebody that you can bear down on. You see, there are a lot of outsiders that I don't believe would be outsiders if we focused on them in prayer. Be consistent and devoted and keeping alert. Then we pray with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. He says with an attitude of thanksgiving. Let me ask you something. Are you grateful for what God is doing Do you ever tell anybody besides the church crowd that already knows it? Are you grateful? I, I, I told the deacons yesterday, I said, you know, you don't have to have the gift of evangelism to be a reacher. All you've got to do 
is you've got to take a loaf of bread on a Monday night and go to somebody's house and say, if you put this in the oven and heat it up a little bit, put a little butter on it, and put a little jelly with it, it'll be wonderful. We just brought this by. God bless you. Our church loves you. We want you to know Jesus loves you. And I don't want to interrupt. We're not trying to come in the door. We're just here to tell you that we love you. You say, well, that's not evangelism. You bet it's evangelism. Because the next person that shows up the door gets their foot in. You bet it's evangelism. It's going and saying, do you have any problem talking about your Sunday school class or your church or the music or the kingdom or anything? Listen, don't just tell your church friends about it. Tell your lost friends about it. Are you grateful for what God does? Then tell somebody. Pass the word on to them. Brag about it a little bit. Talk it up a little bit. If your team's winning, you don't apologize for it. You're grateful for it. Are you thankful? Do you do it with a spirit of thanksgiving? Do you really believe and are you thankful for the fact that God does hear our prayers and God does answer? Then if He does, talk it up. Number three, you're to pray for those who proclaim the gospel. Verse 3, praying at the same time for us as well that God may open up to us a door for the Word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. Now if the doors are closed, who opens them? Say God. Okay, good. God opens the door, but He uses prayer and the Spirit to do it. God opens the doors. These verses are great verses. By the way, they're good verses if you want to know what to pray for me. These were the verses that God gave me when I knew that He was moving me out of youth ministry and into the pastorate. And I began to pray and I began to ask my peers to pray that God would open up a door for me that I might preach the Word and speak forth the mystery of Christ. Now, could I give you a suggestion or make a request, one or the other? If you want me to be a great preacher, whatever that means... Pray Colossians 3 and 4 over my life. You see, the presence of God is always here when we gather together. But His power will be sensed in direct proportion to your prayers for the service. His presence is always here. This is a corporate responsibility for us to pray for the open door, to sense His presence and to sense His power during the proclamation of the gospel. This is a time when we are to pray so that I might make it clear the way I ought to speak. You see what Paul is saying? When I get through preaching, I don't want it to be clear as mud. I want it to be crystal clear. You say, well, what if you're not talking to lost people that day? <laughs> God's got a funny way. The Holy Spirit can save people in any sermon, at any time, in any way that He chooses to do so. A young man came to Charles Spurgeon one time and he said, Dr. Spurgeon, I'm having trouble. I, I preach and I preach and I preach, but nobody's getting saved. He said, do you expect anybody to get saved? He said, well, not always, not every service. He said, that's why nobody's getting saved. He said, when I preach 
And he took him downstairs below the pulpit of the great Metropolitan Tabernacle. And in a room downstairs, there were 300 members of that church that every time Spurgeon stood up to preach, every time he stood in that pulpit, 300 people were downstairs on their knees crying out to God for lost people. That's why almost every year that Spurgeon was at the great Metropolitan Tabernacle, they baptized a thousand people a year. Why? Because Spurgeon was a great preacher. You bet he was a great preacher. The prince of preachers, the greatest preacher that probably ever lived outside of the Apostle Paul as far as the preaching is concerned. But I'll go to that prayer room down there and tell me, you give me 300 people on their knees praying for God to do a mighty work in a service. And I could say Mary had a little lamb, his fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go, and people come down the aisle convicted of sin. Because the Holy Spirit would tell them, you know who that Mary was? That was a virgin Mary. You know who that lamb was? That was the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You better get down there and let that lamb save you. You see, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit initiated by the prayers of people that activates a room to the gospel. And I can sense, and you can sense, when a room has been prayed over and the Spirit has been asked to come in in power and in authority, that's the prayer that you pray for those who proclaim the gospel. That it might be heard clearly. Fourthly, there's a price to prayer. For which I have also been in prison. There's a price to sharing the gospel. Paul paid the price. You see, the reason some outsiders are still outsiders is because some insiders won't pay the price for them to become insiders. There's a price to be paid. If it's worth something, it's going to cost something. Time, energy, talents, money, hustle, love, service, care, whatever it might be. Tony, come up here. I want you to share with them. Forty years ago, the First Baptist Church, Corse County, Texas, had a vision. A vision of reaching children. Children who had never entered into a church. <clears throat> The interesting thing about this is that the state of Texas had okayed the orphanage to go outside and seek a church that would have these children, 300. Of the 40 churches in that community, not one came forward. After much prayer, some senior adults and medium adults of the local First Baptist Church came forward and they said let's provide a place. All the church was asked to do was to provide a place and teachers. The home would provide the children and the means of transportation. And so it came to a vote on the church floor. I would love to say tonight it was 100% but it was not. There was some opposition. What would we do with 300 orphan kids? How would we control them? They look different. They dress different. What would we do with them? But the pastor caught the vision and he pressed on. And the church voted and it was passed. The children were welcome. 
The first day the buses drove up to the church, 350 new members of Sunday school in one day. Those children heard about Jesus for the very first time. Many were given their first Bible. The church had a vision. 40 years later, I had the opportunity of going back to that church where the balcony would wrap all the way around. Today it was different. For that balcony that seated 350 children had been changed. It was now just going across the back of the sanctuary. And it was half full. No longer did the children who were still there at the local orphanage come to church. You see, a new generation had risen up in the church and they lost the vision of reaching children. I'm thankful that that church had a vision because I was one of those children. Where would I be today had they not cared enough to reach out and tell me about Jesus? How is your conduct toward the outsiders? You see, sometimes people say to me, Tony, I've got your notes. Sometimes people say to me, boy, I, I love Brother Tony. I, I love him. He cares about me so much. But you know, I know some of those people would never work in extended session or never staff children's church to care about some kid that could grow up and do something like Tony does. You see, it's for easy for us to care when people look right and act right and are acceptable to us. It's a little harder when it's costly, when it requires something of us. And we've got to sign a commitment card and put our name on the dotted line and say, yeah, we'll care. We'll do something. It's going to cost us. And if we're going to reach people with the gospel, we're going to have to find some orphans and some single parents and some children that don't have a dad and some families that are falling apart and some families that live in $250,000 homes and some people that live in apartments that move from building to building because they can't pay their rent. And we're going to have to find them in all strata of society. And we're going to have to go to the outfield and say, if you'll come, we'll love you. We'll care for you. What if they don't look like us? What if they don't talk like us? What if they don't act like us? I'm glad they didn't say that the day before I got saved. And I hope you're glad they didn't say that the day before you got saved. How's your conduct? Verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Now I've got to tell you, outsiders are not moving toward us, they're moving away from us. They're a little leery of the church. They don't quite know what to do. And we need to anticipate the opportunity and to conduct yourselves and to conduct ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. You see, somebody that was an insider didn't duck their responsibility when it was their time and their opportunity to seize the moment and to share with you the gospel. They didn't leave it to the preacher. They didn't leave it to the revival that was coming up. They said to you, they talked to you. They cared about you because they didn't reject the opportunity or ignore the opportunity to say, this is what we're about. How are we supposed to act toward outsiders? 
Jesus said there were 99 sheep and He went and looked for one. He says, if you want to know what God is like, He's like a widow who loses her coin and she cleans the house looking for it. It's like the father who sees a son that's gone away and he waits and longs for the son to come to his senses. That's what God's like. God is always looking for opportunities to touch the outsider. You see, the church that is ingrown and just content with being around insiders is not New Testament and does not believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God. We must be people who do what Jesus told us to do. He said we were to launch out into the deep and throw our nets out. We want to stand on the shore and tell the fish to jump out of the water and come to us. Jesus said you've got to get in your boats and you've got to launch out into the deep and you've got to make the most of the opportunities and buy up the opportunities. Why? Because the outsiders are in deep trouble and they are sinking in sin. And if we don't throw a lifeline out there and if we don't throw the net out there and bring them in, they'll drown in their sin. Make the most of the opportunity. I believe that we live in a particular season of opportunity. I believe that the window and the door that is open for Sherwood is unlike very many windows and doors that churches have. And we must seize the season that God gives us and grasp the opportunities that He puts in front of us and look for the opportunities that are before us. You know, we talk a lot about the second coming. But the reality of the second coming is there is going to come that day when men will eternally and forever have no more chances to hear the gospel. That's the truth of it. What should matter to us about the second coming is not what the fourth horseman of the apocalypse looks like and when he's going to come and if the army's coming from China or Russia or what the locusts are or anything else. What should matter is is that there are people in our family and people in our neighborhood and people in our community and people that you work with that if Jesus were to come tonight would bust hell wide open and never have heard anything from our mouths and say, Jesus loves you. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Say, well, I don't know. I, I don't have anything in common with those people. I don't understand them. They go bar hopping and they go do all these things and, and they're sleeping around and they, they're just, they're wild. I don't have anything in common with them. You got a checking account? They've got a checking account. You got a house payment? They got a house payment. You got a car payment? They've got two car payments. You got a job, they got a job. You unemployed, they're unemployed. You go to school, they go to school. Listen, the harvest is plentiful. All around us are the opportunities. You have to stumble with blinders on not to see the fact that people are lost. They're without Christ. The credibility of the gospel is wrapped up in you and I. And Paul uses a key phrase when he tells us how we are to conduct ourselves. He says, with wisdom. What he's saying there is you can't be a creep and share the gospel. You can't be a jerk at work and try to convince somebody that Jesus Christ is going to change their life because He hadn't changed yours yet. Conduct yourselves with wisdom. Could I use a very bad analogy but one that will make a little sense? 
It's hunting season, folks. And it's time to get our spiritual guns out and go into the woods and get them because they are there. And hunting season won't be open forever. There's going to come a day when you will not be physically able to do it. There's going to come a day when Jesus is going to say, that's it, no more. There's going to come a day when the Father says, Son, go, and He's going to go, and we're going to go, and then all eternity is sealed. Finally, how should you communicate with outsiders? Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Now we're talking about outsiders, so what do we do? We're to be considerate, we're to be gracious, we're to be a seasoning agent in a corrupt society so that we may know how to respond to outsiders. Be considerate. Don't be arrogant. Don't be rude. Don't beat them over the head with your Schofield. Love them. Embrace them. Care for them. I don't know how to do that. I don't know what to do. Has anybody died in your neighborhood? Did you go to the door and just say, I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. Did you take them a bowl of beans to say, hey, I don't even really know you, but I saw in the paper today that somebody in your family died. And I want to tell you that I'm sorry. Season it with grace. Season it with salt. Making the most of our opportunities. We're not here to cram the gospel down people's throats so that you may know, Paul says, how to respond. We need to listen because the world is asking questions and we're not answering them. It's like the preacher who kept saying, Christ is the answer. Everybody said, Amen. Christ is the answer. Everybody, oh, Amen. Christ is the answer. Amen, that's right. And he said, what's the question? See, this world is asking questions. If God is God... Why did I lose my baby? If God is God, why did my husband walk out on me? If God is God, why are my kids like they are? If God is God, why am I in such trouble financially? If God is God, why did I lose my job? You better listen so you can know how to respond. Because the devil is making people angry at God for what the devil is doing. And that's why we need to be gracious and we need to be warm and we need to be caring and we need to reach out to people that need the gospel. We don't need to give them cliches. We need to give them Christ. And the best way we give them Christ is with skin on. That's us. That we love them to the gospel. I'm going to tell you, I have seen some Christians win some arguments and lose the person for Christ. We are not here to win arguments. We are here to proclaim the love of God through Jesus Christ. Don't take time to argue with people. Take time to love people in the name of Christ. And this is important, I think, that you may know how to respond. You see, there are times when the door is open. When it's open, you need to know how to respond and walk through it and make the most of your opportunity. There are times when the door is closed. When it's closed, you don't need to try to kick it in. 
Our tendency is to go to the extremes. When the door is open, we don't walk through it. When the door is closed, we try to kick it down. No, Paul says, just pray. Pray so that when the door is open, you see, there's an open door. I can walk through and do that. Just like a time when I was on an airplane. I said to the stewardess, how are you today? She said, pretty good under the circumstances. I thought we were 33,000 feet. I thought we were over the circumstances. But uh, I said, "What what are you doing under the circumstances? Why are you under the circumstances? You know what pretty good under the circumstances is? It's somebody saying, I need Jesus and I don't even know it, but if somebody would tell me, I would listen. That's what it is. I'm having a hard day today. Boy, I am too. But I tell you what, there's a reason I can get through these hard days. Now, what's that? Jesus Christ made a difference in my life. And then walk away. You see, you don't have to press it every time. You don't have to hit the knockout punch every time. Just throw it out there one time and let them see it and then walk away and see if they respond. If they respond, you've got another open door. They're going to let you inside, not only the hallway, they're going to let you come sit down in the living room. You see, your job is not to hang hides on the wall. Your job is to be faithful to the opportunities that God gives you. It's not being successful, it is being faithful. Somebody gets a divorce in your neighborhood. Somebody gets a divorce in your office. Share with them in their pain. We're not handing out religion and we're not handing out church membership. We're handing out a personal relationship that will get them through every crisis they've ever had. Do your part. Get in the outfield and throw the ball home. Get in the outfield and bring them in. Get in the outfield and look for opportunities and events and special occasions where you can invite somebody to the gospel. I'll use an illustration that I use with the staff. I think I used it with the deacons. Get your ball diamond out if you would, please. When you look at that ball diamond and we do things like revivals and Bible conferences and the kingdom, those events are never in the infield. They are always in the outfield. I will say it until it becomes the truth and the reality for our lives. The kingdom is not to entertain the membership of Sherwood Baptist Church. The kingdom is for lost people to hear the gospel and know that the blood of Jesus has been shed for them to understand they can be set free from their sin. I looked around this year and I saw some people here every night, every night, church members, and I wanted to walk up to them and say, would you please leave? We've got people that can't get in because you took a ticket for every night for yourself. Shame on you. Shame on you for taking a seat that a lost man might need so that you can be entertained and so that you can be blessed while a world goes to hell. Shame on you. We must care about these people. We must give those tickets to these people. They can't stay in our coats. They can't stay in our purses. They can't stay on our dresser. They've got to go out to people who need to hear the gospel. And we've got to quit being lethargic and expecting the preacher and the staff and those trained in CWT to do it all for us. 
It's my job. It's your job. It's everybody's job to reach people, to get into the outfield. Why do we have a school? It gets us in the outfield. Why do we have a crisis pregnancy center? It gets us in the outfield. Why do we do the kingdom? It gets us in the outfield. Why do we have outreach? It gets us in the outfield. It gets us out of being insiders in the church and puts us outside in the field where we can play ball and throw it home. If we don't do it for that reason, I would submit that we have a business meeting and shut down our doors and go start a coffee house somewhere because that's all we're doing. And we are deceiving ourselves if we think that it's all for us. Oh, it's for them. It's for them. Cast your eyes on a field that are white under harvest. Preacher, you need to do it. Staff, you need to do it. Deacons, you need to do it. Sunday school teachers, you need to do it. Layperson, you need to do it. High school kid, you need to do it. Junior high kid, you need to, Everybody needs to do it. We are without excuse if we don't do what God's called us to do. We stand guilty of double judgment because we believe the inerrancy of Scripture. That means we know better than to hold it all in for ourselves. Do you meet a thirsty man? and have two drinks in your hand and not offer Him one of them? No. You see, this world's grabbing at everything it can, trying to think that that's the answer. And they're grabbing for the wrong things. Kind of reminds me of a story of four men on an airplane. Actually, three men and a boy. It was the pilot, the smartest man in the world, a boy scout, and a Baptist preacher. The plane got in trouble and started going down. The pilot came back and said, Guys, I'm here to tell you this plane's going down and we've only got three parachutes. I've got a wife and kids at home. I've got a responsibility. I don't have any life insurance. I'm out of here. He grabbed a parachute and boy, out he was gone. Smartest man in the world turned to the preacher and the Boy Scout and said, I want you to know I'm the smartest man in the world. I've got answers that this world needs. There are solutions to many world problems that I have. I can't afford to be killed in this plane crash. I've got to go. And he grabbed a parachute and jumped out. The preacher started talking to the young boy. He said, son, I want you to know that I know Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And I know where I'll go when I die. And so I can go and you've got your life ahead of you. I just want you to remember that Jesus loves you and Jesus died for you and Jesus has a plan for your life. And I want you to take that last parachute and I want you to jump. And the Boy Scout said, Hey, preacher, don't worry about it. The smartest man in the world just grabbed my backpack and jumped. You're going to meet some people tonight and they're grabbing backpacks and they think they're safe and they are tumbling into a Christless eternity. Will you give them a parachute or will you keep it for yourself? <laughs>